Good morning. It's the 10th of January and this is Govindraj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day is the Santa rally of 2023 facing resistance. India's oil consumption is rising as global oil prices stay low. How Indian malt whiskies beat the Scots at their own game. New flying rules could lower stress levels for pilots, but is that enough? And Starbucks says it will have a thousand stores in India. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Santa Claus seems to be leaving town, quite literally for sure, since we are now in the second week of January. But as far as the markets go, well, we'll have to wait and watch. The stock markets are actually doing all right. If you were to ignore what has been termed as the Santa rally of late October through December 2023, when in India, for example, the Sensex went from about 63,000 to cross 72,000 a few days ago. But if you were to use the start of the year 2024 as the starting point when the Sensex was over 72,000, then things are not looking so rosy. Back in the United States, where most of those negative triggers are flowing from, apart from a strong labor market, which means economic indicators are stronger than perceived, there is also a new and large supply of government and corporate debt in the United States, which means that capital is staying put or is getting attracted to it. The US benchmark 10-year yield is now holding above 4% after jumping 17 basis points last week thanks to strong labor data numbers, which in turn is causing traders to bet that the Federal Reserve or the central bank will not rush to reduce interest rates as has been originally expected and forecast. Back home, the BSE Sensex, which surged 680 points intraday, swung back down and ended 31 points higher at 71,386. So net-net, it was higher, but not as high as it started out the day. The Nifty 52 ended at 21,545, barely up about 32 points, but having hit about 21,724 during the day. A fund manager I spoke to said the seesaw is being caused also by the strong supply of domestic funds, which is balancing out selling by foreign portfolio investors. Unlike in the past, and when I say past, I mean a few years ago, when foreign portfolio investors could typically define and drive both the rise and the fall. Speaking of domestic funds, net assets under management climbed above 50 trillion rupees for the first time, data from the Association of Mutual Funds in India revealed on Monday. So what the mutual fund industry took 50 years to build, which is the first 10 trillion rupees of assets under management, was done in just one year or the last year. Meanwhile, Goldman Sachs has raised its 2024 end target for the benchmark Nifty 50 to 23,500, which is a roughly 10% upside from the current levels thanks to a earnings upgrade and re-rating of valuations. Goldman's earlier target was 21,800, the Business Standard reported. Goldman Sachs said in a note that their revised target incorporates a 2% higher earnings per share and a 6% higher target price to earnings or P.E of 19.3x. The brokerage also says that the global macro environment has turned more favorable compared to two months ago with the expectations of a stronger US growth and optimism around rate cuts by the US Federal Reserve. Now, 
Goldman's estimates are obviously higher than what it put out earlier. But if you were expecting the Nifty to break through much higher levels, well, it's possible, of course, and we would all hope so. But clearly, Goldman is holding its horses for now. Elsewhere, the macro data is looking a notch weaker. A Reuters poll of economists is projecting that India's retail inflation likely edged up in December on higher food prices. Inflation measured by the annual change in the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, rose to 5.87% in December from 5.5% in November, according to a median view from a Jan 5th to 9th Reuters poll of 56 economists. Food prices, which account for half the inflation basket, rose in November and remained elevated last month, that's December, thanks to vegetable prices and household staples. Speaking of inflation, a new report from rating agency Crystal tracks Google searches for price queries and says that inflation anxiety has been easing over 2023, but it's still higher than what it was in 2018 to 2021, according to Google Trends data or derived from Google Trends data. So now specifically, it's onions and potatoes which have shown a super spike in Google search interest every few years. Not so much potatoes because prices have not moved so much, a fact further linked to storage conditions or the lack of them for all these vegetables. Crystal says the Google Trends Index based on searches for inflation is strongly correlated with inflation expectations of households based on the Reserve Bank of India survey and hence a good proxy for inflation anxiety in the economy. I'm sure many of you must be wondering if there could be other anxiety indices, but we shall get to them when we find them. Oil stays low after a large drop and consumption in India rises. Today's energy segment is supported by India Energy Week. Oil held the largest drop in about a month on signs of a weaker physical market, including an unexpected pricing cut by Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries plus leader Saudi Arabia, according to Bloomberg. Benchmark Brent is now trading around $76 a barrel after falling on Monday with West Texas Intermediate under $71. Saudi Arabia reduced its prices more than had been expected, with prices of other Middle Eastern crudes also declining. Speculators have now begun 2024 by taking bearish positions now on oil, as we talked about yesterday as well. Crude is being held down by rising supplies from outside OPEC plus countries, including US shale gas, as we've been reporting, and concerns, more importantly, that demand will slow this year. Oil prices are staying low despite the Israel-Hamas war, which has triggered related attacks on shipping in the Red Sea to Suez Canal route by Houthi rebels. Back home, India's fuel consumption rose to a seven-month high in December to about 20 million metric tons. Data from the Petroleum Planning and Analysis cell of the oil ministry showed Reuters reported. Total consumption, which is a proxy for oil demand, in December rose about 6% from about 19 million tons in November, which in turn was up about 3% compared to the same period last year. An analyst said that due to the festive season, demand has been growing at a rapid rate in recent months and will continue to increase, but the growth could be slower as 2023 has been a strong year. Sales of diesel rose and gasoline fell. On the other hand, as we've been talking about, vehicle sales continue to do well, as we reported via Federation of Automobile Dealers Association's data yesterday, more specifically about 21% annually, which means, of course, that more fuel will and ought to get consumed. But of course, vehicles are also becoming more fuel efficient 
and then you have the electrics. The energy segment was supported by India Energy Week to be held from February 6th and more details are at www.indiaenergyweek.com. Indian malts beat the Scots at their own game. Sales of homegrown single malt whiskies are overtaking the Scottish and other brands, the kind Indians once and even now make a beeline in duty-free for. Some 40% of the fairly high-priced Indian malts like Amrut, Paul John or the recently popular Indri are exported, but demand is growing back home as well. Estimates from industry body, the Confederation of Indian Alcoholic Beverages Companies, CIABC, shows that Indian single malts have cornered a share of about 53% in that category of total sales in 2023. Indian single malts grew over 23% in the last year, according to provisional estimates, while imported malts grew at only 11%. Interestingly, global alcohol giants like Diageo and Pernod Ricard, who typically source their single malts from Scotland, are now launching local brands. Diageo had introduced the Godavan in 2022, while Pernod recently launched the first Indian single malt, Longitude 77, according to the Times of India. The interesting thing, of course, is that consumers both in India and overseas are willing to overlook the aura of Scotland-made whiskey and experiment with Indian malts, only to, at least going by the data, find it to their satisfaction. I reached out to Vinod Giri, Director General of the CIAB. Giri is an industry veteran himself, having worked in Seagram and Sab Miller in senior positions, and I began by asking him to give us a quick crash course on malts and the reason why Indian malts were scoring over their Scottish counterparts. To begin with, the malt whiskies are the top end of the pyramid of spirits. So we start with the overall the whiskies, that's about, it's a massive market. So it's about say 240 million cases market. Then you come to the the top end of that, which is the what we call the Scotch whiskies categories, thousand rupees plus category. Then you are looking at barely two percent of or three percent of that market would be in thousand rupees plus category. Within that, then the malt whiskies are the top end of it. Just to give you an example, in a city like Delhi, the single malt prices would start from three thousand rupees onwards or per, which means. At 3,000 rupees, you're looking at the lower end of it. The higher ones like Rampur and such for us could be 7,000, 8,000, 9,000. We also have come across cases of Indian single malts being sold for 30, 35. So single malt whiskies are really on top and end of this. What in a very broad sense explains the acceleration that we've seen on the part of Indian single malt brands, which I'm assuming is mostly in the last couple of years? See, the first Indian single malt whisky was launched way back in 2003-04. It was a brand called Amrut. For a long time, it fought its own solitary battle. In the beginning, when they launched and when I was speaking to their founder and he was telling me it was so hard to convince people that India could produce a high-quality whiskey. In the last decade or so, when many more people started joining and many more distilleries started getting into this business, then the, really the malt whiskey market has taken off. In the last four, five years, we are seeing a meteoric rise in this market. In my view, this is driven by, first is, there is a change in the consumer belief system. The earlier, older generations which lived in the era of shortages, they believed that the imported products are always better. But today's India, driven by the fact that the cars they see, the phones they see, everything they see around them is being produced in India. They do not have any such notions. 
should they believe India produces as good as any other country in the world? Number one. Two, when the product, the Indian malt whiskies, when they taste, the product actually matches their expectation. So the quality of the product is extremely good. So when they try out, and because they believe that they have discerning enough taste to decide for themselves, test the product, and they find the product is quite good. In fact, the same thing is endorsed by the various whiskey critics all over the world. When we hear the Indri was rated the best whiskey in the world, this world. so all the critics also are saying the same thing. Now, this happens, in my view, because of a couple of factors. Number one, the Indian barley is slightly different which gives it a distinctive flavor. It's a six-road barley compared to a two-road barley, which you get in Scotland. And the second is, and probably the more important reason is, the maturation which happens in the warmer conditions is different. So unlike in Scotland, where you have one or two percent of the whiskey will evaporate every year through maturation, that's a very slow maturation. In Indian conditions, it's 10 to 15 percent. So which means... In India, on an average, whiskey matures three to five times faster. Now, that has curious effects on the product. So, the rapid maturation, it gives a very robust flavor to the and finish to the product. So, that's something which the critics as well as the consumers pick it up straight away. And they like it. Now, second factor is product delivers on the expectation of the consumers and they think it's as good as any international product. And third, of course, is the companies, Indian companies, are getting the confidence that they can compete with the best in the world. Once the success starts coming, one success creates another success and more and more people. Now they realize they are producing the whiskeys which are as good as anybody else. So they are able to sell at very high prices. In, for example, the Diwali edition of Indri in U.S. is retailing in the total violence, that's a retailer chain, and a price of $330 a bottle. Indri, the regular one, which we see in the market here, is selling for $64 a bottle and so on and so forth for every other product. So when they realize there is, they can sell. So it's a combination of all three. Industry starts with the consumer, product has to deliver, and the manufacturer needs to have the confidence. Right. And I'm assuming this, the whole concept of, you know, single malt and Scotland and everything that goes with it, the brand order, therefore does not matter. That's one. Second is, is there any tariff or trade impact here in terms of supply and demand? On this segment, there is not much effect happening or tariff because the most of the Indian single malt whiskies actually retail at a price higher than imported whiskies. So there is no disadvantage because of tariff to the import. And also remember, in India, it actually costs much more to produce a comparable product. And so the math is very simple. The cost of capital, which goes into maturation, Cost of capital in India is, say, 8 to 10% compared to, say, 2 to 3% in Scotland. And cost, because you will mature the whiskey, it's your cost of capital inventory carrying cost is the most important cost. Second is the evaporation losses are massive in India. As I mentioned to you, they are 10 to 15% every year, which means your cost, if you mature for three years, your cost is automatically 30% more than that in Scotland. And there are many factors so we believe that the cost of production in India is 50 to 75% more. In this segment, there's no real effect because of the tariff. We've just begun 2024, and these numbers are obviously encouraging from an India brand point of view. What's your outlook? So we expect the industry to keep growing very rapidly. And let's not forget that the, even the 
there is a premiumization happening in the consumers also. So they also are trading themselves. We expect the growth rate for the Indian single malls going where the current trends should be around 50%. So you're saying in two years time, it'll double roughly. I will not go into the progression numbers and the maths of it, but next year I can predict that it will be around 50%. What happens thereafter is more not so. Vinod, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, it's almost welcome. Speaking of alcohol, it turns out that health-conscious younger people are drinking less than millennials or baby boomers when they were the same age, according to Bloomberg. Thanks to which non-alcoholic spirits, which make up about $1 billion, which is only a small part of the $650 billion spirits market, is booming. This market, which is the non-alcoholic spirits market, is expected to grow about 30% annually in coming years versus 6% for conventional spirits, Bloomberg quoted market research company Euromonitor. So, whether big or small, all these companies are chasing after younger customers. Interestingly, among 18 to 26-year-olds in the United States and Japan, more than half claimed not to have consumed alcohol in the previous six months. In a separate Gallup poll survey, only 62% of American adults under the age of 35 said they drink. This number is down from 72% a decade ago. All of this is from Bloomberg. Now, several liquor companies are obviously jumping onto this category as well which, by the way, is also seeing higher prices at this point. The other and interesting countervailing force working here is that weight loss drugs Ozempic and Vigovi appear to have eased the pull of addictive substances like and including alcohol. New flying rules for pilots. Is it enough? It's not the wisest thing to speak of alcohol and then jump to aviation and flying, but there's some good news that came in yesterday as we reported on the core report too. Pilot safety has been, as we pointed out yesterday, in the spotlight in India after an unusually high number of deaths of pilots across Indian airlines, apparently because of fatigue-triggered cardiac conditions and a general increase in reported fatigue. The Directorate General of Civil Aviation on Monday introduced new flight duty regulations under which weekly rest hours for pilots have been increased from 36 hours per week to 48 hours. It's also reduced the maximum flight time for pilots to fly at night in a day to eight hours and cut down maximum landings by a pilot in a day to two. These new guidelines or norms will come into effect from June 1st, the DGCA said. Now, the question, of course, is, is this sufficient and what's the larger background? I reached out to Captain Mohan Ranganathan, an aviation safety consultant and former instructor pilot on Boeing 737s specializing in wet runway operations training. And I began by asking him how he thought, or rather what he thought about the new changes and whether they addressed the fundamental issue that's of pilot fatigue and also how these norms stack up against international and best practices. I'll start with international norms first. And the best international norms are followed by BA and Singapore Airlines, Singapore Authority as well as the British. They follow the Douglas Bader study where, see, what DGCA has done is like one size fits all. They have never considered the time of your sign-on. See, there's a difference. You can do a 14-hour duty if you have had a good night's sleep and you have signed on, say, at 6 o'clock in the morning or after 7. But if you take the British rules or the Singapore, which has about the best duty time, is based on your sign-on time. 
So if you sign on during the best part of the day when you're well-rested, like 8 a.m. to 1600, you can do the full 14 hours. But if you're signed on, say, after 1600, for every three hours, they reduce your duty time. India has never addressed that, even though it has been brought up several times. They are talking of, you know, midnight to 6 a.m. But if you take those countries, if you sign on after midnight and between that time of circadian low, your maximum duty will be six and a half hours. That's all, not 14 hours. And for every landing, they're talking of two landings, signed on between midnight and, but they never talk of the other times. So if you're doing four sectors, if you see the countries which follow very good FRMS, you will be finding that for every landing, your duty time is reduced by 45 minutes because they don't take into consideration the fatigue. But over this, every landing causes a stress. And when you're doing a multi-sector flight, they adjust the flight duty time based on the stress level. So that is something which has not been addressed here. They've just got one thing. They've given you rest period from 36 hours to 48 hours. But that doesn't help. Okay. And how many, let's say, flights would pilots typically do in India in the time periods or time zones that are a little more critical, which, as you pointed out, are in that 100 to 6 a.m. or 5 a.m.? See, any flight which cuts into that and has to be considered, they will make the schedule that it is 11.55 arrival. I've seen the way things are manipulated here. So they will print the schedule that arrival is 23.55. Or they'll say 23.00, so that if you take what time you sign off, then your duty doesn't cut into that. That is how airlines will manipulate. Unfortunately, the regulator in India doesn't function as a regulator. He's more like a facilitator. All the rules are made towards helping an airline. Because for them, the new duty time limitations, if you make it strictly as per the FRMS recommendation of IKO, you need a lot more pilots. So you're also saying that there is no consistency in these rules and regulations across the world, and it's really every airline setting different parameters? No, most of the countries follow that. Like if you take the Europe, Middle East, and Southeast Asia, they all have started following the IASA rules. But here, on paper, there's FAA rules. But we have our own. If you look at any, like even, the, I have not looked at that FTTL recommendation which has come recently. You'll always find one line at the end or the beginning of the rule, which will say at the discretion of the DGCA, it can be waived or dispensation will be given. As long as you have that line, that's a carte blanche to airlines to push their limits. Right. So the original problem or the issue was raised when we saw several deaths of pilots attributed to fatigue-led stress or fatigue-linked stress. Now, is that being addressed with this, again, as you look at India and elsewhere? Not at all. You see, stress is not just the fatigue of the amount of rest you have. It is so many factors. Like, you know, after COVID especially, one of the biggest stress is financial stress. Most of the pilots are neck deep with EMIs. Now, when you start playing around with the salaries, 
technically, the DGCA says that if they have not conformed to the contractual terms, you can quit. But they still insist on that one-year notice period, which is a fraud on the system. You know, this is the airline and DGCA hand in glove to prevent you from jumping ships. So, you know, when you talk of the people who died, the stress is not just the question of you don't have a family life if you take the pilots. Now, say that 48 hours, you don't find the wording that your day off or the rest period should be at home. Like somebody can be in a hotel, that's not rest. If you see airlines like Lufthansa or Singapore Airlines, they will book them into five-star hotels and you will find that the whole floor will be soundproof so that they have undisturbed rest. Here you will find them sending them to the cheapest hotel. Maybe not the five-star, but they'll send them where they are disturbed. So technically, your rest is not rest. The only place where you can get proper rest is home and you will not find the FTTL and rest period rules mentioning that your day off has to be at home. Right. So if I were to ask you for one recommendation that you feel should be brought in so as to make the work and life balance better for pilots, given the Indian conditions, I mean, in India, obviously, we are working at lower levels of economics and so on. What would that condition be? Your day off should be at home and the rest period should start only after the transportation time. It's not that you can switch off and rest 45 minutes after landing. Like if you're in Delhi and you're staying in Noida, it's going to take you a lot of time to reach your home. So they should include transportation time as a mandatory requirement before the rest commences. And it should be at home, not in a hotel or outside. Airlines designate that you'll have your rest period in a hotel. That's not done. That is something which no other country does. Right. So would you say that when we catch early morning flights or very late night flights, our pilots are in good shape in India? Not at all. For the simple reason, like if you're doing an early morning flight, six o'clock, his sign on is at five o'clock. Okay. If he's staying two hours away, you know, he's left home at three o'clock and he has got to get up and get ready for the flight. So it's practically five hours before he can even take off. In a five or six hours. Those are things which are not considered by these people here. Right. Captain, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. More findings in the Alaska air mishap. Meanwhile, air safety officials probing last week's fuselage blowout on a Boeing 737 MAX aircraft of Alaska Air are now focusing on four bolts they've been unable to locate and said they may widen their investigation beyond the MAX 9 variant after multiple airlines found loose parts, according to Bloomberg. These bolts were meant to secure the door panel that suddenly broke loose on Jan 5th when Alaska Airlines Flight 1282 was climbing towards cruising altitude and had 171 passengers aboard who all, of course, returned safely. Tightened properly, these bolts prevent the panel from sliding upward past the 12 stopper tabs that bind it to the aircraft's fuselage. Meanwhile, the Director General of Civil Aviation on Tuesday said a missing washer was noted on one of the aircraft during an inspection of 39 of the under-fire Boeing 737 MAX fleet in India. However, it was rectified as per Boeing's recommendation prior to the release of this aircraft. An inspection on the aircraft will be completed prior to release of service, it said. 
Boeing had recommended a one-time inspection of all 737 MAX aeroplanes before January 10th. That's today. DGCA last week asked airlines to inspect the emergency exits of the Boeing 737-8 MAXs, which are there in their fleet, according to the Economic Times. Starbucks to go to 1,000 stores. From airlines and aviation to coffee, coffee giant Starbucks has said that it will double its stores in India in four years, opening the equivalent of one new shop front every three days as India's growing middle class fuels a boom in coffee consumption, Bloomberg reported. Starbucks wants to operate a thousand stores in India by 2028 and the focus will be in the tier two and tier three cities. Starbucks came to India about 12 years ago in 2012 through a 50-50 joint venture with the Tatas and now has 390 stores across 54 cities. It also said it will expand its drive throughs airports and 24-hour cafes and expects its India workforce to double to 8,600. Despite the popularity of tea, coffee drinking is evidently growing, including the experience of it in well-appointed and cool cafes, whether belonging to large chains like Starbucks or smaller ones, including startups. Over the last 11 years, the Indian market has grown to become one of Starbucks' fastest-growing ones, CEO Lakshman Narasimhan, who is visiting India this week, said in a statement. The target for 1,000 stores would make India one of the company's major overseas markets, though it's still small compared to China, which has about 6,500 stores. On that note, have a nice coffee for the day and see you tomorrow. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>